Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to the London School of Economics. This is an event sponsored by the School of Public Policy at the LSE. My name is Andres Velasco. I am the lucky guy who is the dean of the school, and I'm very, very happy to see you all here. It is Friday night. There were rumors of a rail and tube strike, so you're all courageous people. I'm very glad you're here. And of course, we're very, very happy that we have my friend, the great political scientist, public intellectual, and man about time, Yasha Monk, who's going to be presenting to us his new book, The Identity Trap a story of power and ideas in our time. Yasha is a bit of a prodigy, forgive me for saying that. Uh, he's written a number of books, even though he's, what, 40 years old. He turns them out at the rate of one every six months or so to the great uh, envy of his friends. And I count myself lucky to be able to call him my friend. I think the book that may be made into quite well known, I was going to say a household name, but maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but I'm from Latin America, exaggerations are okay. It's a book that I very much like, which influenced my thinking called The People Against Democracy. And it's about the tension between the liberal bit in liberal democracy and the democracy bit in liberal democracy. And, you know, it's a book that is now, what, five, six years old and which I think was very, very influential in many people's thinking about that very important issue. More recently, Yasha gave us another book called The Great Experiment, which is about democracy at a time of diversity, a book in which he makes a very important point that most successful democracies in history have been successful, among other reasons, because they took place in places that were fairly homogeneous, whether culturally, ethnically, or any other way you like. And of course, we would like to think that's a bit of the past. Most modern democracies are wonderfully diverse and multicultural. And the question is, what are the challenges of running a democracy in a place that is diverse? And how do we make sure that such democracies succeed? And I thought he gave us a very nice vision of what that could be like with a metaphor of a park, if I remember correctly. A park is a place that we all share, even though, and that we all enjoy, and where we can all be friends, even though we're not exactly alike. And uh, Yasha is not a shy man, and therefore he's not shy about taking on big, challenging projects. And he has done exactly that with his most recent book, which he is going to talk to us about tonight. We are all aware that uh, politics has been taken over by identity. Well, it's probably not the right formulation. I used to be a politician, so I should know that politics is always about identity. There is no such thing as non-identity politics. But it is true that sometimes identity politics is a very healthy and beautiful thing. And sometimes identity politics is more of a difficult and challenging and troubling thing. And I will leave it up to our guest tonight to tell us whether the recent brand of identity politics is of the beautiful kind of maybe, maybe the troubling kind. In any case, it's a wonderful book. We will have copies of the book out there that Yasha will very graciously sign on our way out. And uh, I should say that the event will be recorded. Uh, you're welcome to tweet about it. 
LSE public policy. If you have a million followers on Twitter, well, tweet and tell the world what a wonderful gathering this is. I'm very sensitive about this because my wife has seven times more followers on Twitter than I do, and I have half a million. So uh, on the issue of Twitter followers, I defer to the great, including my spouse. In any case, Yash is also, of course, a graduate of Harvard University. He's a professor of practice at Johns Hopkins in Washington, D.C., a columnist for The Atlantic, a founder of Persuasion, and a very long and impressive list of achievements. I'm not going to read his CV, but it's a long and distinguished one. And without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to him. We're going to uh, give him the microphone for as long as he wants, but I suspect that it will not be that long. He's lived in America for a long time, but he does a certain Germanic order and clarity and brevity to his presentations. I don't uh, think German academics are known for their brevity, are they? That is true, but I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. Uh, and they do it in German, which is so confusing. Uh, yes. <laughs> and after that, he and I will uh, have a conversation, and when that conversation runs out of steam, we'll open it up to you. So um, without further ado, Yasha, we're delighted to have you at the, back at the end the sea and the floor is yours. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be back in London even though I'm a little sad not to be getting the real experience of a tube strike. You know, I thought I'd really get the original uh, experience. So as uh, Andres alluded to, I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool and my last couple of books have been about the rise of populism and the threat of this poses to democratic institutions. I remain very concerned about this. I know that people in Britain are quite upset at the state of your politics in this country, and you have good reasons to be upset about aspects of that. For having just flown in from the United States this morning, I have to say you should count yourself lucky, um, <laughs> because it can get a lot worse. Um, and I'm very worried in the American context about the fact that Donald Trump not only looks like he's on course to win the Republican Party nomination, but is running head-to-head -head and in many polls ahead of Joe Biden, uh, ahead of 2024. So I remain concerned about all of those things, and yet I decided to write a book about a rather different topic this time around. Uh, part of that is that when I wrote The People versus Democracy, there really weren't many books about populism that were aiming at more than just a narrow scholarly audience. I think there was a lot of need to understand that subject. At this point, we've understood what there is to understand about Donald Trump. I don't think the world needs one more damn book about Donald Trump, and I'm not sure it needs one more damn newspaper article about him either. But more profoundly, I've been struck by the fact that since I started my university education here in this country about 20-some years ago, and since I started my PhD in the United States about 15 years ago, the ideas that are prevalent in academia, are, and particularly the sort of leading notions of how to think about and conceptualize about the world on the left, have fundamentally changed and transformed. Uh, I think we have seen the rise of a tradition that has deep intellectual roots and that isn't just as no ideology is entirely made out of whole cloth from nothing, but that is, I think, a genuinely novel ideology that has reconceptualized what role 
identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation do and what role they should play in our public life, in our public policies, and so on. And even though these ideas have come to be very influential, there's a daft of serious work about them. One of the origins of this book is that I thought, you know, I'm trained originally as an intellectual historian. I did my undergrad in history in Cambridge at a time when the Cambridge School was very dominant there, reading history of political thought and intellectual history alongside with a couple of people in this room. And I thought, well, to understand this ideology, let me read about its intellectual history. And there was nothing to go and read. There's a couple of attempts at telling this intellectual history from sort of right-wing polemicists, uh, and one or two good efforts that outside, but I wouldn't sort of disqualify in that way. But there's very, very little academic work actually trying to say, hey, where does this ideology come from? And in the same way, there's a whole bunch of debates about a word that I tend to avoid, which is woke, and there's people who uh, say this doesn't really exist, and people who say it is the best thing ever, and people who say it's terrible, but very little that tries to understand and analyze those ideas and critique them in a serious way. And so I thought, uh, you know, perhaps uh, I should do that. And so the book is called The Identity Trap, and the metaphor of the identity trap comes from the fact that to understand a trap, you first have to understand it's a lure, right? A trap is never going to be effective if it doesn't have anything to draw people in. Um, and to understand this ideology, we have to understand some of the alluring aspects of it, some of the alluring elements of it that have made it so appealing. Uh, and I think fundamentally that is the claim that society is deeply unjust, is structured by serious forms of racism and sexism and homophobia, all of which is true, that our traditional institutions have failed to deal with those forms of discrimination and failed even to allow us to make progress on those counts, a claim about which I'm somewhat more skeptical. And then with a promise to say that this set of ideas is going to allow us in a more uh, radical and uncompromising and coherent way to remake the social world in order to eradicate and overcome all of these injustices. Um, and that makes it very easy to understand why people are attracted to these ideas, because I too share the ambition to do what we can to overcome those injustices, which are all too real. Now, my concern is that though this ideology contains a very powerful lure, it is nevertheless a trap. We've seen over the course of the last few years uh, many progressive organizations that have reshaped how they operate in accordance with the kind of ideas and norms inspired by this ideology, have internal meltdowns that actually made it much harder for them to serve their mission, uh, and often the mission is genuinely important. We've seen the adoption, especially in the United States, of a set of pedagogical uh, practices that try to teach students to conceive of themselves, first and foremost, as racial beings, 
as one organization characteristically called Embrace Race puts it. So in the United States, it is now quite common, especially in some of the most elite private schools in the country, to have racial affinity groups in which teachers come into elementary school classrooms in third grade and second grade and first grade and divide kids up into an African-American group, an Asian-American group, a Latino group, and a white group. And I think that that is a deep trap because the ambition, especially in the case of a white group, to create uh, you know, courageous anti-racist activists who own their whiteness, who own their European heritage and fight to dismantle white privilege is unlikely to be realized. Everything that our colleagues in the social sciences teach us about how in-group and out-group dynamics work suggests that they're much more likely, if they truly come to define themselves as white in that way, to start fighting on behalf of their in-group, to become racists rather than anti-racists. It is, I think, a political trap because we are seeing not just disastrous public policy decisions that we can talk about that actually make it harder for minority groups to succeed, but also the political costs of that. In the United States now, about 10% of Republican voters are disproportionately young, disproportionately non-white, disproportionately progressive on many social issues, but are so concerned about the role of what they call wokeness in mainstream American institutions that they're going to vote for Donald Trump in 2024. And so I actually think it's a mistake to believe we have to choose between, on the one end, fighting against far-right populists, or on the other hand, standing up to these ideas. I think the, right, the rise of far-right populism has made it harder to criticize these ideas in spaces that lean left, because you immediately become accused of running interference for the far-right. But it's the hold that these ideas now have over many institutions and parts of political movements that is making it easier for people like Donald Trump and other populists around the world to succeed in elections. And so uh, one, uh, in practical and political terms, I think one is the yin to the other's yang. To be coherent in opposing one is actually helpful to oppose both. And I think this is also a personal trap. We all search for and deserve forms of social recognition. And of course it is a normal and natural and in fact a deeply attractive part of ethnically and religiously diverse societies that people are and remain proud of their national origin, of their uh, culture of heritage, that they might continue to speak the language of their ancestors and to uh, engage in different cultural culinary traditions. All of that is what makes cities like London or New York wonderful places to live. But to send the message, which I think we are now sending to many young people, that the way to gain recognition in society fundamentally is to identify yourself by the particular intersection of identities at which you stand is setting them up for failure, I think. It's setting up for failure, first of all, because it's very hard for society to recognize the complexity of people's identities in the kind of uh, practices we're now adopting. I was just speaking to a friend of mine whose father is African-American and his mother is from Puerto Rico. And on his first day at, at college at Columbia University, 
she was asked to participate in an affinity group. And so he was asked to go to either a Latino group or an African-American group. And so he had to make a decision on the spot of how to define whether he was going to go with his mother's identity or his father's identity, because his own was an amalgam of both. And this is not, I think, an outlier. Um, we can never actually be true to people's complicated identities. I have a lot of examples of that in the book. But I think it's also a more profound uh, mistake. Some critics of this political moment on the right like to complain about everybody wanting to be their own unique little snowflake. I think we are all unique little snowflakes. I think that's fine and great. And the problem with seeking social recognition through the intersection of identities at which we stand is that it doesn't allow us to feel validated in our own unique little snowflakeness. Uh, my brother and I have a very similar intersection of identities, but I'm very different from my brother. And to feel seen and recognized by society, I want to be seen for my individual tastes and achievements and idiosyncrasies rather than just being seen as the same as my brother because we share the same identity groups. So what I've done right now is, to summarize the introduction to the book, <laughs> there's, there's four parts of the book. In the first part, I tell the intellectual history of these ideas, arguing that it is a mistake, as some people have claimed, to say that this is a form of cultural Marxism. Actually, to understand the main themes of this ideology, you have to see the way in which it is a synthesis of ideas founded in postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. And by looking at the thought of thinkers like uh, Foucault and Said and Spivak and Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, you can really see the seven or eight main themes of contemporary progressive social justice politics emerge. The second part of the book answers the very interesting riddle of how these ideas went from being influential in certain corners of the university in about 2010, but very marginal to society as a whole, to being very mainstream in the United States, pretty mainstream, I would say, in the United Kingdom, and increasingly influential on the European continent as well. And that's a story to do with social media, with a change of generations, and what I'm calling a short march for the institutions, and then the rise of far-right populism and the way in which that made internal criticism harder on the left. In the third part of the book, I apply the popularized versions uh, of these ideas in the form they actually have influence over our politics and mount a philosophical criticism of them, arguing why we should reject the notion that we cannot understand each other when we stand at different intersections of identities, arguing for the value and the beauty of mutual cultural influence and against putting forms of cultural exchange under a general pole of suspicion by use of the label of cultural appropriation making a case for uh, laws protecting free speech, which the United Kingdom has some work to do on, but also culture protecting, a, a general culture of free speech and emphasizing that the best arguments for this are not based in the good things that happen when you have free speech, but in the bad things that happen if you don't have free speech. And I cover some other subjects as well. And then finally, I make a case for uh, the liberal response to the criticisms that are directed against it. This ideology is really fundamentally from the beginning 
an attack on liberalism more than anything else. And I think liberals need to recognize that <coughs> and mount a coherent response. And so I offer a rational reconstruction of the identity synthesis and uh, what I think the liberal response to it should be. But I'm sure that Andres will set me up to explain all of that in greater detail in our conversation. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was a pithy summary. I have lots of questions, but I will try to be Germanic in my discipline and only uh, touch on two or three, maybe four, and then uh, open it up to the audience. I imagine this is an issue where one gets very political very soon, and I suspect some of the questions will be political. Uh, anticipating that, forgive me if I begin with a couple of more scholarly ones. I found the sort of intellectual history bit of the book particularly interesting. Not that the characters are all that new. I mean, we've all come across Edward Said or Foucault, certainly, but, but the way you present the material, I thought, was, was at least to me very instructive. And there was one, you helped me articulate in my head something which had always confused me, and maybe you could share this with the audience. On the one hand, if the root of this, call it, school of thought, is French postmodernism. One cliche way of summarizing French postmodernism is that there's no reality, there are only social constructs. Uh, and one social construct is gender. Uh, and another social construct is race. So race is something that, you know, the hegemonic society has foisted upon us. The number two observation is that identity politics or the identity synthesis, as you call it, very much tells people that they should identify with that identity, racial, ethnic, gender-based, etc. So here's the paradox that I never quite could sort out in my mind. How could one possibly want to identify with something that is invented, which is not real, which is a construct of the dominant culture, the elite, the bourgeoisie, or pick your favorite bad guy. And uh, you explain how this is sorted out, or how there are attempts to sort this out, which I thought was very, very uh, enlightening. Could you spend a couple of minutes and tell us about that? Yeah, so this is, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm playing a little bit of sort of inside debate here, but you know, the few attempts at telling the intellectual history of these ideas have mostly claimed that this is a form of cultural Marxism, right? And the problem with that, and so the idea is that you start with something like Marxism, which we all know, and take out economic categories like social class and put in these identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. But other than that, it basically remains the same ideology. And therefore, the roots of it really lie in sort of Karl Marx and then perhaps Herbert Marcuse and, and Horkheimer and Adorno. And we are somehow supposed to get to the ideology today. Now, there's two problems with that account, the first of which is conceptual, which is that if you take economic analysis out of Marxism, mm -hmm. that's a little bit like saying that you're taking bets out of cricket. This is not very much, I'm pandering to the English audience here, but apparently uh -huh, that uh -huh. didn't work. Um, or bets out of baseball, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. This is not very much left. It's not clear what that actually There's means. There's a world rugby cup going um, on, maybe. Take the oval ball, the oval out you of, know, make it round or something yeah, like that. that you know, might, um, take the ball away from football, yes. Uh. And it's also wrong in terms of who the thinkers who are influenced by this tradition today are actually citing. So it's just not true that they are going back to Marx and Adorno, they're going to a very different set of thinkers. And so I think that the starting point is with thinkers like Michel Foucault, who reject grand narratives about history 
including liberalism, which is why from the beginning this is an anti-liberal tradition. We, we claim that liberal democracies have been able to uncover certain truths about human nature and to structure reality in a more rational way that allows us to treat people more humanely is attacked throughout Foucault's work. But he also rejects the grand narrative of Marxism and comes to a lot of grief for it because a lot of his contemporaries in France in the 1950s and 1960s are Marxists who take that betrayal very personally. The bit of Foucault that remains influential is this deep skepticism about universal values and neutral truths and his reconceptualization of power. The idea that we should think of power not as top-down with laws that are passed and a bureaucracy and a policeman on the street who enforces the laws, but rather as being discursive, as uh, the two of us imposing power on you by the way we're having this conversation, the concepts we use, by us continually imposing power on each other in our intellectual discourses. Now that becomes a very powerful solvent. It's a very effective way of critiquing reality. But it also ends up being somewhat apolitical, somewhat cynical about our ability to make progress. I had Noam Chomsky on my podcast a year and a half ago and he was reflecting on his famous debate with Foucault in 1973. And he said, I have never met such an amoral, not immoral, such an amoral person in my life. He was still shocked by you know, the refusal of Foucault to ground his politics in an account of reality that allows us to make or to hope for some kind of linear progress. Right? And so that becomes very influential on the next set of thinkers in this intellectual lineage, which is post-colonial thinkers who are very attracted to postmodernism because it allows them the solvent that criticizes the ideologies that had justified colonial rule, uh, and when they're trying to think, how do we rule our countries in this new situation, they understand we thought, we don't want to take over that ideology whole cloth. We want to do something new and think for ourselves. And so being able to critique those ideas is really attractive. But at the same time, we actually need answers, right? We need to make laws. We need to mm-hmm. have rules and norms. We can't just criticize. We need to actually have something to put in its place. And so they're simultaneously attracted to and repelled by postmodernism. So the first step in the attempt to use those tools but to repoliticize them is Edward Said, who in Orientalism says, he doesn't have any good word to say about anybody in that book, except for Michel Foucault. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I'm very influenced by the Foucaultian notion of a discourse, and it helps us explain how the West has conceptualized the East and the so-called Orient, um, and how that's justified colonial rule. But the point is not just to point that out, it's not that one discourse is going to be as bad as the other. It's to invert discourse in a certain kind of way, to use that as a tool for those formerly colonized countries to become more powerful, to push back against the unjust power of the West. And that becomes a model for what you might call a kind of politicized form of discourse analysis that is still with us very strongly in progressive politics today. So that today, when you do feminist politics, part of that might be to fight uh, to change laws about sexual harassment or something like that, but a lot of it is going to be to celebrate or critique or render problematic the Barbie movie, right? That's a recognizable form of politics, not just in feminism, but in all kinds of social movements today. And that is, I think, downstream from Said's move. And the other move here, and that really answers your question head on, 
is Gayatri Spivak. Spivak is a Indian literary theorist who has roots in Bengal and Kolkata. She makes her name as a translator of Jacques Derrida, writing an over 100-page introduction to on grammatology. But again, she is horrified when she reads Foucault and Deleuze saying in an exchange, you know, the proletariat can speak for itself. It's time for us intellectuals to stop speaking on behalf of other people. Because these identity categories that you need to operate with in order to speak on behalf of others are really problematic. In the same way that universal values or neutral truths are problematic, right? They're essentializing categories that simplify people in order to uh, put them in a box and we should do away with them, right? And Spivak says, well, hang on a second. That might be true for white workers in Paris. They might be able to speak for themselves. But the kind of subaltern, as she calls them, in Kolkata, who I'm really concerned for, they can't speak for themselves. They may not have had that education. They may not have those financial or political resources to speak for themselves. Somebody has to speak on their behalf. And so we need identity <laughs> categories in order to be able to do that. So she comes up with this interesting but slightly paradoxical notion of strategic essentialism. She says, yes, the philosophical critique of essentialism in postmodern philosophers, they've got that right, philosophically speaking. But for practical strategic purposes, we need to be able to speak on their behalf, and we should encourage them to own their identity groups as a form of resistance. And that becomes deeply influential. When you go to a progressive space today in, in America, or I think in Britain, people will say something like, race is a social construct. It's completely artificial. That's broadly speaking, I agree with that. But then we go on to say, well, we have to fight for the interests of brown and black people, right? The important thing is to defer to the demands of people of color, right? They then immediately go on to use those pretty essentializing racial categories, and that, I think, is strategic essentialism in action. And so this explains the sort of weird move where one lesson you could take from the fact that race is socially constructed Right. is to become skeptical of the use of race, like there's people like uh, the African-American uh, scholars Karen and Barbara Fields do in Racecraft. But the lesson that this tradition takes is inspired by strategic essentialism. It says it may be artificial, but because oppression has been based on the basis of it, we need to organize society more rather than less around those categories. On my first day as a student at Columbia, many, many years ago, I was in the queue to get my ID, and I look at the man in front of me, and guess who had lost his ID and needed to get a new one? Edward Said. Um, so for a brief moment, I was a Said groupie. Um, I did what, he was very gracious. I, you know, produced a card, he signed it, you know, complete and total groupie. But of course, I had not read Orientalism yet. Then um, I did, and I, my groupishness uh, receded somewhat, um, but I'm still recovering. One other somewhat bookish, but actually more political question, and you make this point very well in the book, um, it is quite extraordinary how radically at variance with every other progressive ideology in history this particular ideology is. You go back to the 19th century, liberalism and socialism, at some point they came from the same roots, they both split up, but they have one thing in common, our common humanity, and the idea that uh, regardless of 
the place of our birth, we are all the same and entitled to the same rights and to the same dignity. And that therefore the goal of social progress is to erase differences. And this is a social movement that tells us that in fact progress is associated with making those differences even sharper and we should emphasize them and that we should build our politics around those differences and not around the effort to get rid of these differences. Which, first obvious point, you know, if the Communist Manifesto ended with a, the call to workers of the world to unite, this could not be Marxism, because Marxism is by construction, by definition, universalist. So tell us a bit more about two things. First of all, why is this progressive if it is not progressive by the standard of every other progressive movement? And secondly, why have progressives of the other school, with a few exceptions, been so shy at saying that? To pick up on this point, I think there's a really interesting structural difference between this ideology and Marxism. So a lot of anti-liberal theories and philosophies have certain structural similarities. And I think this is the case here as well. So one simple way of summarizing Marxism is to say something like, the key prism for looking at reality, for understanding history, is economic categories like social class. Right? That is really the motor of history that is going to explain to you what's going on. Right? Secondly, the claims that bourgeois liberal democracies make for themselves about universal values and people being treated equally in front of the law and all of those kinds of things, right? um, that's just an attempt to pull the wool over your eyes. The true function of those liberal rules and values is to sustain oppression. Right? And therefore, what you need, well, you need a revolution that rips those institutions apart and substitutes them with a socialist and finally communist state. Right? You could tell a structure of this ideology that I think is quite similar. I think you can offer a rational reconstruction of the identity synthesis, which would say, broadly speaking, number one, the key prism for understanding social reality and history and political events and the way that we interact today is identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. You know, I distinguish in the book between the more sophisticated founders of this tradition that I've talked about earlier, and I would add people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, the founders of critical race theory, to that list, and then the perhaps more effective but rather less sophisticated popularizers of this ideology, uh, like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo. Now, D'Angelo says, every time a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Now, that might be true in certain contexts, but it's not true if those two people are best friends who are arguing about politics, right, or spouses who are having some kind of uh, normal spousal fight or people who finish each other's sentences as a form of rapport interruption to demonstrate that they're listening to each other, right? But if all you can see is these categories, that's what the world looks like to you, right? The second key claim, again, running in parallel a little bit to this other tradition, is to say, well, the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence and the 14th Amendment and the you know, court rulings like Brown versus Board of Education they look like they're trying to establish 
these universal rules. Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregates American schools, looks like it's trying to bring American reality into slightly closer alignment with its ideals by overcoming some of the most extreme forms of historical discrimination. Really, it was just in the interests of whites. That is the argument of Derek Bell explicitly makes. Brown versus Board only happens because it serves the interests of whites, and therefore racism remains as bad as it ever was. In other words, these are just ways to pull the wool over people's eyes. The true function of these kind of norms is to perpetuate discrimination. And so therefore, number three, what should you do? You should rip those up. But here's the interesting difference. Where the third prong of Marxism is at the end of its historical progress, the proletariat is the universal class. And once the proletariat is the universal class, all of us are brethren. All of us stand in solidarity with each other. There's no longer that conflict against the external enemy. This tradition has given that up, right? The thing that most provokes members of this tradition today is people like Karen and Barbara Fields, or like the writer Thomas Chatterton Williams, who are sort of race abolitionists, who say the right lesson, I'm personally not a race abolitionist, but who say the right lesson to take from all of this is to just completely destroy race as a category of how we structure our world. They say, no, 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 no. That is the wrong lesson to take. You actually need to make how the state treats all of us and how we treat each other more explicitly depend on the kind of racial categories to which people belong. So this tradition has lost the universal promise that was always part of the appeal of Marxism in an interesting way. And that's sort of one of the points of divergence. I feel like I've answered half your question. No, no, no. You've answered 1.5 of my question. Um, Last bookish question, and then one more political question, and then we'll open it up. Uh, Last bookish question is, democracy is predicated on the notion that I can put myself in your shoes, and therefore I can have some sense of what you need or want, and I can vote for candidates who espouse policies that are good for people other than me. Human art is presumably based on the idea, the hope, that we can put in, you know, ourselves into the shoes of many other people. Uh, and, and the great works of art have precisely that aspiration, and uh, many achieve it. The, one of the founding premises of, of what you call the identity synthesis is a, is a denial of all of that. Um, some people call this standpoint epistemology. That is to say, I was born in Chile. My family is what is nowadays called Latino. I'm not quite sure that I like that label, but let's use it. And therefore, what I can say about the world is live experience of a man who's a Latino. And somebody who's not a man and not a Latino could not know anything about what my lived experience is. Can one hope to have a liberal democracy based on such an epistemology? Or in order to preserve democracy, should we throw that kind of epistemology out the window? Yes, I think we do need to throw that epistemology out of the window, in part because to sustain meaningful political solidarity, we need to enter into conversation and dialogue with uh, fellow citizens who are different from us, who have different experiences, but under the premise that we can understand them, not under the premise that we can't. So, you know, half of your last question that I hadn't quite answered is sort of this, the contrast between the traditional universalism of the left that I, I continue to feel rooted in and the rejection of that universalism in what I'm calling the identity synthesis. And two ways of making that clear are applications of this new ideology to so-called standpoint theory 
and to the notion of cultural appropriation. And so perhaps it's helpful to talk you through that. And that gives a little bit of a taste of the philosophical critique I make of um, some of the applications of this ideology in the third part of the book. So rooted in a kind of misinterpretation of Kimberly Crenshaw's notion of intersectionality, there is uh, more and more this assumption that if you stand at a different intersection of identities from me, then we're not going to be able to understand each other in meaningful ways. And that therefore, you know, there's some very popular books saying things like, you know, why I'm no longer going to talk to white people about race or why you should defer to each other rather than try to understand each other. And so the idea is that because we can't truly understand each other's experiences, what a good uh, progressive will do, and particularly what a good white progressive will do, is to defer to the points and the judgments of people who are more oppressed. And that's going to be the basis for our political solidarity. Now, I think that this is philosophically wrong-headed and it's politically wrong-headed. But to understand why, we first have to understand the piece of this that is intuitive, right? And that is true. Which is that, of course, as a guy, I have to worry less before taking the subway late at night or the tube late at night, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know and will never know exactly what it feels like to sit on the tube and have somebody sexually harass me in that kind of way, right? And so I certainly need to be aware of the fact that there's certain experiences that I'm less likely to have or unlikely to have relative to other citizens. And when they come to me and tell me about those kind of experiences, then I have an obligation to listen to them with an open mind rather than saying, well, I don't know, I've never experienced that, so you sound, you sound like you're exaggerating, right? And obviously, lots of people fall into that kind of mistake, right? So there's not a trivial point. Um, but this new way of thinking about the, the popularized version of the standpoint theory nevertheless goes wrong. It has four key claims, each of which turn out to be mistaken. The first is that all members of a particular group share a set of relevant experiences. The second is that this set of experiences gives them a unique and sufficient understanding of the way in which oppression works. The third is that they cannot adequately communicate those insights to people who have not made the same experiences. And the fourth is that therefore the right model of political solidarity is to defer to them. Okay, so on the first point, it's really hard to come up with what the boundaries around these groups that have shared experiences are supposed to be. Interestingly, when uh, Spivak tries to do this, saying, look, I mean, perhaps we should be skeptical philosophically of the concept of woman, but for practical political purposes, we should embrace it nonetheless. The example she gives at the time, not meaning to be controversial, is let's define women genitally by the fact that they uh, have a clitoris. That is not what today would be an uncontroversial definition of what a woman is, right? Uh, so a lot of feminists try to ground this in saying, well, look, what women have in common is the experience of caregiving or the experience of being expected to be caregivers. Um, but other feminists then point out that many women do not want to be defined by their caregiving uh, responsibilities in life. And by the way, there's single uh, fathers who do a lot of caregiving as well, right? The second uh, point is wrong because, of course, people who experience forms of domination 
uh, have certain special insights that come from that. But there may also be insights that are reserved for people who don't experience those forms of discrimination. In the American South, most enslaved people were not allowed to learn to read or write. And so it was natural that some non-enslaved people had superior access to certain forms of knowledge about their society because they were able to learn to read or write. Friedrich Engels knew something about the oppression of a working class in part because he was a factory owner who had some experience of making those decisions, right? So you need the insights from both sets of groups. Thirdly, <coughs> as Rachel Fraser, a feminist philosopher at Oxford University points out, we have to distinguish between experiential knowledge and uh, propositional knowledge. Um, there's a debate about whether the Nordic model for dealing with prostitution is the right one. It seems very attractive to a lot of people uh, because the idea is that you don't want to criminalize sex workers, but you do want to disincentivize sex work. And so what you should do is to criminalize the people paying for sex work, but not the people engaging in sex work. And there's two feminist writers who are former sex workers who, based on their experiences, have pointed out that this has real disadvantages because it then means that people who are purchasing sex work um, have an incentive to do that in really secluded spaces and that makes sex workers less safe. Right? What Rachel Fraser points out, I, I have no opinion this way or that way about the Nordic model, but what Rachel Fraser points out is that this is an insight that they have come by because of their experiences, but they were able to communicate it to a broader audience. All of us are able to appreciate this argument even if we can't fully walk in the shoes of what it is like to have that experience. So those are the philosophical reasons why the strong version of this idea that we can't understand each other and that we should defer to groups is wrong. But there's also political reasons that I think just as important. So the American politician Ayanna uh, Presley has said at a, a progressive convention called Netroots, I don't want any more white politicians who are not a white voice. I don't want any more brown politicians who are not a brown voice. I don't want any more queer politicians who are not a queer voice. I don't want any more black politicians who are not a black voice. Now, the first problem with that is how do you define who is the white voice, the brown voice, or the black voice, right? Is the black voice Ayanna Presley who's black, or is it Jim Clyburn, or Barack Obama, who have very different kinds of politics, right? In Britain, is the, you know, quote-unquote brown voice Sadiq Khan or Suella Braverman? Right? You can't point to a group and say this. As the great American civil rights activist uh, Bayard Rustin said, the idea of a unified black community is the invention of whites and certain elites within the black community. Um, and that same could be said for other groups as well. But more importantly, what actually happens when we ask people to defer judgment? A few people might be so motivated by social justice that they do that, but most people are not going to do it. Most people say, I'm not going to defer to the point of view that you're telling me I can't even understand. It's just not a realistic model. And even the ones who do are going to pick the spokespeople they already agree with. So it's really just a perverse argument by authority. So what is a better model? To say, look, it's hard to understand each other. It's hard work. But we can understand each other by listening to each other, by being in community with each other, by having novels and movies and TV shows and documentaries by having forms of cultural exchange in which we actually put in the work to try and understand the concerns and the experiences of our fellow citizens. And then our political solidarity can be based on a mutual set of aspirations. I may not know entirely what it feels like to worry about sexual harassment on 
uh, the subway. But I know that I don't want to live in a society where my female friends have to worry more about how to get home than me. I can understand that that's an injustice that I should be motivated to fight against. And then I'm fighting against it for reasons of my own, rather than because of this claim that you should defer. So it's very long, so I'm going to spare you my spiel about cultural appropriation, but I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A. Last question, you'll give us a brief answer, and then we'll save half an hour for questions from everybody else in this room. Enough about philosophy, let's talk about alternatives. You close the book by doing two things, providing a philosophical critique of why this school of thought is a trap. You've sort of just um, given us a summary of that, and then you have a very nice sort of practical chapter on how it is one can fight back and sort of not making the mistakes that will put you in a corner as some sort of an undesirable reactionary. But you stop short of saying, if not this, then that. And the reason why I want to push you in this direction is that you know, I'm a guy who's run for office twice, I've lost twice, so I'm highly qualified on how not to run a campaign. But I did learn one thing, that one does not fight identity with abstraction. If you say, well, a narrow identity is not a good thing, so why don't we all stand for solidarity and world peace, that's not going to get you any votes. If you say, I stand for world peace between X and Y and Z, who historically fought, and you bring some emotion into that, and you create some other identity which is broader than the narrow identity you're fighting, that may get you some votes. You know, the people like Yael Tamir, the, the Israeli philosopher, who claim that you know, liberals really have to be nationalists because the only social glue that is not based on, on race or gender or class is the social glue provided by the nation state, which is broad enough to accommodate people uh, who are different and look different and think differently. So what is your preferred alternative? If abstraction won't do the trick, what kind of identity can we offer voters that is more all-encompassing and, in addition, for someone like Joe Biden, a vote-getter? Yeah, so let me say a few things about this. First of all, I'm not against all forms of identity politics. I think the term identity politics is so broad There'll be forms of identity politics, approval of and forms of identity politics that I find worrisome. You know, one distinction is that really is key, whether you're fighting for inclusion under universal rules or you're fighting for the abolition of universal rules. So let me give you two concrete examples. We were talking about this a little bit before this. You know, two friends of mine, Jonathan Rauch and Andrew Sullivan, were more responsible than just about anybody else for the achievement of same-sex marriage. They wrote the two uh, biggest articles uh, introducing and advocating for these ideas in the late 80s and early 90s, when this idea seemed like sort of very unlikely to come to pass, right? But they consistently say that the first fight they had was within the gay rights movement. Because at the time, a lot of the gay rights movement said, we don't want to get married. Marriage is a terrible, liberal, bourgeois, social institution, right? We're countercultural and radical. We want to rip up all of those terrible, hypocritical institutions, right? And they had to win the fight internally and say, no, our issue is not with the institution. Our issue is with the exclusion of that institution, right? It's with the fact that we're not being treated the same. And we're going to win this fight not by saying burn down bourgeois society, but by saying we're just as capable of love as somebody who's straight. We deserve the same rights. Why are you discriminating against the, the rights that we have rather than this other group has, right? The same, I think, in the history of many ethnic minority movements. You look at somebody like Frederick Douglass in the United States. He was fully aware of 
the deep injustices against African Americans at the time. When he was invited to hold a speech commemorating the 4th of July, he called out his compatriots for their hypocrisy, saying, how can you say it's so wonderful all men are born equal when a lot of black people are still enslaved in this country? But he didn't say, therefore, rip up the Constitution. He said, if you mean those values, then make sure that you treat all people in the United States with the same dignity and treat them as equals. Right? And so I think we have to make a distinction between identity movements that are fighting against real injustices against identity-based groups in order to win inclusion under these universal rules, and ones like Derek Bell, who I haven't talked about very much today, the founder of critical race theory, who says uh, that we have to reject what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. We say that perhaps Brown versus Board of Education was a mistake and we should aim for schools that are separate but truly equal. Right? That is the question that is fundamentally at issue. So to go back to those three claims of Marxism or those three claims of the identity synthesis, I think liberals have a coherent response to those three claims. And it is to say, number one, that of course race and gender and sexual orientation matter. Of course they help to structure what our society looks like. And of course there are still deep injustices based on that. But so do some other metrics. So does class, so does religion, so does individual action and aspirations and choices. So you can't come in with one prism. You can't be monomaniacal about how you perceive a social world. That's a mistake that in different ways Marxists and advocates of the anti-synthesis both make. You can't waltz in knowing what's going to explain a situation. You look at the situation and let it teach you whether in this context race explains it or class explains it or something more idiosyncratic and individual explain it. Secondly, it is untrue that the universal values and aspirations of the sort of unwritten constitution in Britain or of the written constitution in the United States or the precepts of liberal philosophy have been used to pull the wool over people's eyes. They are the things that have historically allowed us to make enormous progress on these matters. They are the principles and the procedural protections that deeply unpopular activists could use to win the right of women to vote, to win same-sex marriage, to win uh, huge improvements in the state of African Americans in the United States. And so therefore, to continue to make progress, the path is not to rip up that settlement, but to continue to fight, to bring an imperfect reality into closer and closer alignment with the kind of values and aspirations that we have. Now, you're going to tell me this is still too abstract, so let me say something more concrete, which is that, I actually think, and I'm a small D Democrat in that sense, a lot of Democrats have given up on people. They've started to think most people are unreasonable and terrible and bigoted. And I don't think that. I think that most citizens in modern democracies are pretty reasonable and decent. They can get many things wrong, and I'm not saying I always agree with every polling result on everything, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, you can look at complicated issues and find that vast majorities are pretty reasonable in what they believe. Vast majorities in the United States think both that we must teach children about the great injustices of slavery and that George Washington was a great man who should be honored. 
And that includes majorities of Democrats and majorities of Republicans who think that. Even though Democrats believe that Republicans don't think that uh, we should teach slavery, and Republicans don't think that Democrats believe that we should honor George Washington. Um, in Britain, I know that one issue that is very controversial is the debate about trans rights. And you can agree or disagree with what the majority opinion on that is, but more in common in the UK has done very careful polling on this. And what we show is that a great majority of Britons uh, want more tolerance for trans people, want people who are trans to be treated with dignity, to be allowed to live in accordance with the gender they choose. And majorities of Britons also worry about forms of self-ID in contexts where there's protected single-sex spaces. Um, they also recognize that going through male puberty gives people an advantage in athletic contexts, uh, which has them worried about self-ID in the context of high-performance sports. Um, so I think that at the level at which I, we've had this conversation in a university setting, these ideas are abstract. But at the level of where they're actually debated in our politics, they're pretty concrete. They're about real things. And there's majority positions that fall firmly within the liberal tradition that you can articulate in a thoughtful way. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. And the task is for everyone in this room to come up with more of those concrete examples of how liberal politics or liberal ideas can be made into vote-winning policies, not an easy thing. All right, we have a microphone somewhere, do we not? Brilliant, back there, okay. Uh, I will take the people who first raised their hands, so the woman in the third row, right here, please. I think the mic is coming away. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation and for the thought presented. I think my two main questions would be about, first of all, uh, I think there was a distinction between sophisticated identity theory thinkers and kind of the popularized identity theory thinkers. And from my understanding, you agree with the most sophisticated identity thinkers and disagree with the popular ones. Therefore, I would say that the issue is not the identity trap, but much rather the popularized view of the identity trap. Uh, and therefore, that would kind of disagree with the argument that you put forward. And secondly, I'm not saying that this is uh, something you argue for, but the way in which is presented might be interpreted as such. Mm -hmm. I felt like there was a, this kind of false trade-off between you either have identity politics or you have meaningful discussion, hard conversations about what it means to have universalism and have different people in the same democracy. And I felt like that was a little bit disingenuous in the sense of why wouldn't it be possible to have identity politics and meaningful conversations 
with identity politics at the same time kind of uphold the ideological sense of identity uh, politics. One would argue that because of identity politics, you were able to have those hard conversations in the first place. You were able to have those meaningful conversations about race, sexism, and so on. So I kind of wanted the thoughts uh, about those two questions. Yeah, so on the first question, perhaps I wasn't sufficiently clear. I, want, I do want to make a distinction between uh, the, the thinkers I discuss in the first part of the book who I think are sophisticated and worth taken seriously and who I enjoyed reading and the ones you know, like Robin DiAngelo or Ibram X. Kendi who I think have really turned those ideas into very simplistic slogans that have uh, gained a lot of cultural currency. Now there's two problems. One is that the, the, the ideas that actually have influence are the simplistic ones rather than the more sophisticated ones. But secondly, no, I, I very much disagree with these ideas in the original uh, formulation as well. So to go back to Derek Bell, he is, this is a debate that perhaps is a little bit stronger in the United States than it is in Britain, but there's this debate about critical race theory, right? You see it a little bit in Britain as well. And on the right, people say, no, critical race theory is terrible, and therefore we shouldn't teach people about the history in this context of, uh, you know, terrible things that the British Empire did or something like that, right? I mean, therefore, in the mainstream and the left, it's sometimes the response as well, I mean, of course we should teach people about the bad things the empire did, the bad, you know, the aspects of American history like slavery in the American context. And so critical race theory is just wanting to think critically about the role that race places in our society and what can be wrong with that. If you go back to actually read the thinkers who have founded this tradition, what they're saying is much more radical than that, and I think wrong. Uh, so Derek, Derek Bell is, a, is an admirable, interesting guy who did uh, heroic work uh, for the NAACP, helping to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South in the 1960s, but then comes to think of that work as fundamentally a mistake, comes to agree explicitly in one of his most influential academic articles with the critique of civil rights law originally made by segregationist senators in the South who say these civil rights lawyers come in, they say they're arguing for um, the interests of their clients, but really by just imposing the ideology of integration on everybody else. And this article by Derek Bell is called Serving Two Masters, and he says that is in fact what happened. That we were arguing, and some of us, you see where he comes from, you know, we were arguing for uh, to integrate the school because I was representing this 13-year-old who should get a good education, but by the time we won the case, he had graduated high school, and so he didn't get to profit from that. Fair objection, right? But so he concludes that perhaps in many contexts the civil rights movement should give up on its ideal of integration in order to fight for better funded segregated schools. He concludes uh, that racism in America is permanent in such a way that it might uh, shapeshift. It might change the kind of nature it takes on in various moments. But fundamentally, America in the year 2000 is as racist as it was in 1950 or 1850. Kimberly Crenshaw, the second key figure in critical race theory, in reflecting on uh, the 20th anniversary of critical race theory, uh, emphasizes that the key tenets of critical race theory are fundamentally at odds with the political philosophy of Barack Obama. And so I think that integration is the right ideal. 
I don't think that civil rights lawyers were imposing their ideology. I think they were arguing on behalf of the interests of the great majority of African-Americans. And I think that even for America today, surely remains uh, marked by racial injustices, as does Britain and as do other countries. We have made tremendous progress on race. In fact, it's offensive to claim America has not made progress on race. Not to the wonderful Americans living today, but to the people suffering much more extreme and worse forms of discrimination in 1950 and 1850. Um, so I disagree with these thinkers in a fundamental way. Right here. We were talking about how constitutions can offer protection. So we've got next week, we've got in Australia, the referendum coming up that will institute permanently, that seeks to institute permanently, a voice for indigenous Australians. And it is hugely controversial. Um, is that going to really concretize and make permanent the identities that they have sought to erase. Um, but then also there is the argument that you have to erase the injustices of history. So it's a very difficult situation. I wonder where you'd fall on that. And last bit, what did your friend, the Puerto Rican, which identity did he choose? <laughs> Well, in America, because of history, we have uh, the so-called one-drop rule, and I think in part, even though he's very critical of these whole concepts, and I think in part because of that, he felt that he, he was seen as black and should go to the black group, but he felt that it had done sort of, I hate his phrase, but sort of done violence to his self-conception. It oversimplified his conception of himself. Um, yeah, the One Voice referendum is, is, is interesting. I have to say that I'm not much of an expert on Australia. I think Native Americans, indigenous peoples, indigenous Australians in this case, are a slightly special case because they sometimes have a recognition uh, in their own peoplehood. And so there's a question as to whether we are dealing with uh, fellow citizens or with representatives of another nation that somehow is sharing part of the same territory. Right. And that makes it slightly more complicated. I think when you're citizens of the same state, you should not have differential political representation based on your ethnic belonging. Um, I think when you, in a sense, have two or five or 10 states or nations sharing the same geographical entity. There's more complicated questions about how to deal with that against the background of historical injustice. Um, concretely, my understanding can, can, can is- Can I stop you on that? Yeah. If one ethnic group has been disadvantaged for reasons A, B, C, and therefore they account for 20% of the population and never accounted for more than, say, 2% of the votes in parliament, you would be against some sort of a stimulus subsidy quota, call it what you wish? Yeah, I would be against a formal quota. No, I, I would be in favor of political parties um, representing those voices. Right, I would but, be in but, favor but, but of, if the parties of, had 200 years to do it and they never got round to it, perhaps they need to be prodded a bit? But who's going to prod them? I mean, some, you know, one of the things that fundamentally I find odd about this conversation is that it assumes real-world constraints on one end and then abstracts them away on the other end. So let me give you an example of that, right? When it comes to uh, free speech, in a moment in which, as we've been talking about, you know, very worrying far-right populists have a lot of power around the world right now. But somehow when we talk about whether or not we should have limits on free speech, we always assume that the censors are going to be on the side of the weakest and the most marginalized and those that have historically been treated in the most unjust ways. Mm -hmm. But what on earth gives us that assumption? 
by definition, the people who are going to be part of the you know, Westminster Census Bureau or the Silicon Valley Speech Facilitation Committee or whatever they might call it, are going to be powerful. Who's in that position? It's the people who already have and hold tremendous political power. That is why, to go back to Frederick Douglass, he recognized that people in his day published terribly racist things in newspapers that he called free speech the dread of tyrants because it also allowed course, the weakest yeah. members of society to argue for their rights. And so in this scenario, what is this political system where simultaneously there's too little public pressure and too little power from these minority groups to get political parties to represent them in any way, but there's this like deus ex machina institution that can impose these quotas. I, I don't think that that is actually a very realistic I'm, I'm scenario. Not, I'm not, well, don't have the time really, but I'm not quite sure what you say that because I can perfectly well imagine recognizing the legitimacy of the system as is, uh, imperfect as it is, but we all tend to think that Joe Biden is a legitimate president even though the United States uh, is not a perfect democracy, and that imperfect democracy legislates some arrangements whereby some historically underrepresented group get more representation, perhaps permanently, perhaps uh, as a temporary measure. That doesn't strike me as a violation well, of I mean, liberal I, principles. Not, not to quote your country uh, back to you, Andres, but I think there was an attempt to do that in Chile. No, um, no, actually, I was thinking about that. But the result was, I mean, just very briefly to lay out my, my simplistic yeah, yeah. understanding of many can complicate it. Yes. There was a draft constitution that I know you opposed yes. um, that tried to give all kinds of rights to various minority and gender and so on groups. And that constitution ended up being so unpopular that at a moment when Chile was dominated by very progressive politicians, yes. it failed in the vote. And there's now a new constituent assembly that is dominated by the far right. So isn't that exactly an example of what I've been saying? That is exactly one of the elements of the trap, but you're describing it as a black and white yes or no choice. And the point that I would make is that there's a continuum, just to illustrate with Chile. In Chile, it is not controversial or not massively controversial that indigenous people should have some reserve slots in Congress. And I don't think anybody would really take to the streets to protest that. On the other hand, the draft constitution proposed that indigenous peoples be tried under a different penal system. And that, I think, offended many people's sort of sense of common sense, right? Uh, if I'm driving a car and I had an extra drink, I run somebody over, I get one sanction if my surname is X, and I get a different sanction if my surname is Y. Um, and that is the sort of thing that people said, no, 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 this is going too much. So I am perfectly happy to endorse quotas when it comes to voting. I am not perfectly happy to endorse different penal systems. And I can give you 25 other examples of things that could be done and 25 examples of things that should be done, at least according to me. Sure. And, and we can have a debate. Just, just, just very briefly to end on the One Voice referendum, I, I may be wrong, but my understanding is that the referendum is quite ambiguous about what actual rights it would give to indigenous people. And so part of the problem is that it's unclear where on that continuum that Andres just pointed out it, it, it falls. And that's one of the reasons why, from what I read about it randomly in some article a week ago, so I might yeah. be wrong, yeah. uh, it had broad support and the closer the vote is getting, the more it looks like it's going to be rejected. Yeah, a lot of misinformation. Okay. I'm going to take a question from the back because I've been, okay, the gentleman in the green back there, Sorry, but I, I'm trying to be uh, geographically uh, equitable. Hi, uh, thank you very uh, much for your talk today. I haven't read your book, but I, I look forward to reading it. Um, you said at the beginning of your talk that 
it's important to understand why these ideas have such appeal. I'm wondering, what have you observed in the people who are attracted to these ideas? Like in terms of their, I don't know, their personality, their life history, their, their geography, for example. I notice it's really, you know, these ideas are very popular in Ireland, where I'm from, New Zealand, Australia, Britain, Canada, but, and America, but they're not as popular as in other countries. And I'm curious if you've written about this in your book, and, and, and if not, why not? Mm. And, and I'm asking, obviously, that question in, in good faith. I'm curious about why, I suppose, this question is not discussed widely. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, I mean, that's a great question. The, let me give you this sort of less charitable and then the more charitable answer. The less charitable answer comes actually with a lot of sociological evidence. Um, I mentioned one study by Moore and Common in the UK context recently. They had a very widely discussed uh, study that I think was very good called uh, the Hidden Tribes Study in the United States, trying to really uh, figure out beyond Democrats and Republicans, what are the five or six ideological tribes in the United States? And you had devoted conservatives and the whatever. You had like six categories. The one that roughly corresponds to people who hold the views I talk about, they named progressive activists and it was about 8% of the United States population. It's not an exact match, but when you look at the questions they asked to get a two-fourths into that tribe, it, it's, it's quite similar. Um, those progressive activists are the most white group in the United States, the most affluent group in the United States, and by far and away the most educated group in the United States. So one answer to this is that it's an elite ideology. It's an ideology that is much more likely to be held by an upper middle class white graduate of Harvard University or Smith College than it is by a Latino or African American uh, blue collar worker or middle class white collar worker. And I think that this leads people to deep political miscalculations. One of the puzzles that people have in Britain is why the top ranks of the Tory party are quite ethnically diverse, and actually the voters of the Tory party are increasingly uh, ethnically diverse. And I think, and in America, there was this narrative for a long time that because white people vote more for Republicans and non-white people vote more for Democrats, we're approaching this inevitable demographic majority for Democrats. But Florida, which has gone from being mostly white to being 50-50 whites and non-whites, has moved from being a purple state, uh, a toss-up state between Democrats and Republicans, to one that clearly favors the Republicans, as it's grown to be more diverse. In America today, knowing the race of a voter tells you less about who they vote for than it did eight years ago. And I think we miss out on that knowledge because there's a availability bias that journalists and politicians and political strategists have. Because the non-white people that they know, and most of them now are generally friends and know people in their lives who are non-white, are extremely high education, high affluence voters who went with them to Cambridge and Oxford and Princeton and Harvard. And they think, well, people from that demographic group think like my friend, forgetting how uncharacteristic their friend is of the group as a whole. So that's the less charitable answer. The more charitable answer. One, one item, I mean, one little bit of evidence from Chile to confirm that uncharitable answer. 
The constitution that was meant to defend and protect and cherish indigenous rights was rejected by the biggest margins in those municipalities in the south of Chile with very large indigenous uh, populations. Oh, in fact, in Araucanía, in the very center of the country where most indigenous people live, or at least used to live, uh, the margin against was 80, 20, 90, 10. Wow. Yeah, that's a great, I'm going to use that example in the future. Um, Just to give a more charitable answer as well, there's a uh, organizer in the United States called Ibu Patel, who, whom I uh, respect greatly. Uh, he's an interfaith organizer. Um, his parents are Indian Muslims. Uh, he grew up and was born in the United States. And he talks about how uh, when he came to university uh, and he was surrounded by some of these ideas, they helped make sense for him of some of the experiences he had growing up. He recalls his father who became somewhat affluent running a uh, five or six Subway sandwich stores, franchises of them, being asked at a business company, at a business conference, why he didn't start business, sandwich stores of his own, why he took out franchises. And I forget what his name was, but he said basically, you know, well, which guy in Indiana is going to buy a sandwich from a guy with my name, right? Mm -hmm. And so Ibu felt when he was encountering these theories that it explained part of his childhood to him and part of the choices that his father had made and some of the forms of discrimination that he had experienced. And so he felt it really resonate personally. But he then also recognized that it was a, a trap for his own conception of life. He tells the story very movingly of taking an independent study with a black female professor who then puts on a play with her students and she invites him and he's learned to be critical of everything, to see everything through his identity lens. And he watches this play and at the end of it he says, you know, at the talkback session, um, you know, this is uh, really offensive because uh, all of the children in this family had their own rooms. What about the families where the children don't have their own rooms? You know, this is classist and racist and whatever, right? And this professor emailed him afterwards and said, look, thank you for your criticism. You know, it's easy to criticize. It's always easy to tear things down. Uh, what's hard is to build and to make things better. And if you criticize this, why don't you try writing a better play? If you see things in the world that you think are wrong, why don't you try to build something that's more constructive? And for Ibu, that was really a turning point. And it's the moment when he kept some of the elements of his ideology but came to really reject it. And today he talks about the fact that he is angry about the way that his two sons are being taught in school because uh, his teachers uh, ask him to share about the discrimination they uh, experience as Muslim Americans. And they do experience some discrimination. Ibu thinks that's fine. This is no teacher has ever said, why don't you share something that's beautiful about your religion? Why don't you share something that you're proud of in your cultural heritage? It's only ever, why don't you share the ways in which you've been discriminated against? He doesn't want them to hide that. That's an element of America. But that, he doesn't want his son's identity to revolve around that form of victimhood. He wants it to revolve around the beautiful things that they get from their culture and religious tradition. So I think more charitably, there's also people like Ibu who feel that this explains something to them. And to some extent it does, but I think it then makes them over-focus on one element of their experience and one element of their identity to the exclusion of ones that are richer and more fruitful and allow people to have a more deep sense of recognition and belonging. I think that with those two 
moving anecdotes we're going to bring this event to a close we've taxed our friend here for 90 minutes 89.5 minutes um, and uh, I'm just going to first say thank you Yasha that was that was fun that was enlightening that was serious that was provocative that was political and we wish we could go on but uh, it is Friday night and I'm sure people want to do other things aside from philosophizing and engaging in political debate so please join me in saying thank you very much Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.